to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body, the body does not, not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Please join me as we read this out loud together. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Fist bump. Boom. I don't know about you guys, I know I'm slightly biased, but that's probably the most beautiful scripture. <laughs> reader I've ever seen. Um, well, my name is Nick. If I haven't met you yet, um, that's my wife, if you're new here. Um, glad you're here. As you could probably tell from the reading, we're going through a sermon series going through Paul's letter to the early church at Corinth. Uh, and we call it First Corinthians. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, open them up or turn them on to First Corinthians 8. And the title of my sermon this morning is that true love limits Freedom, And so uh, it's important for us to understand the context of what's taking place here in the letter. Paul, what Paul is doing here, the author of this letter, 
as he is addressing certain questions that were posed to him from the early church at Corinth. There's some correspondence going, and there's this phrase. Our, our text this morning opens up with this common phrase. It's actually used, I think, roughly six times in this letter where Paul says, now concerning blank, now concerning, and we see in our text today, now concerning food offered to idols. It's, it's kind of like if you've been to a conference before, and there's a panel, and you can like text in your questions, like a question and answer form here with the Apostle Paul. And so I did youth ministry for uh, a number of years, and um, a couple times a year, we would do a Q&A night where uh, students could write down questions, and, and we would answer them. And, you know, I think we um, older people, if you will, don't give teenagers enough credit for um, some, some of the, you know, the thoughts they have, some of the questions of the faith they have, and just don't give them near enough credit. So one of the questions that was asked me during one of these Q&A sessions was, was Nick, does it hurt being bald? And uh, to which I answered, physically, no. <laughs> emotionally, emotionally, yes. Um, so they're asking Paul this question, ask him some type of question in regards to food offered to idols. And at first glance, uh, we might think, why this seemingly insignificant question that has nothing to do with us 2,000 years ago? We're going to see it has a whole lot to, to say, uh, speak into our lives today. But the problem that we have in the 21st century is that we don't understand the depth and the breadth of paganism in the Greco-Roman world. Pagan worship was the air you breathe. You were saturated in it from the the, the, the highest heights of society to the lowest of lows, that's what you did was worship idols. And at the center of these Greco-Roman cities would be the temple. And the temple would serve as a, a butcher shop and a banquet hall. So when you would go and you know, sacrifice an animal on the altar to a god or to a goddess of the city, uh, you assuredly would not sacrifice the whole animal, right? Part of it, it would kind of be divided up into three parts. Part would go to the the God be burned up on the altar, and then part would go out into the market, you know, sell those T-bones, sell those fillets for, for, you know, good profit out in the market, out on the streets. And then the other part would probably go to the, the basement of the temple where the temple chefs would, would, would cook up some bacon-wrapped fillets. And if you wanted to have a wedding or a birthday party, you could rent out the temple banquet hall and, uh, and purchase and, uh, the catering services that they offer. So that's kind of the three uh, uses of... Uh, uh, the animal there in, in, the, in the temple sacrifice. And all that to say, Christians now were, were confronted this, with this question of how do I, a follower of Jesus, be in pagan Corinth but not of pagan Corinth? Can I eat a, a ribeye that was offered up in a sacrifice? Can I, can I eat that meat in the market? And what we're going to see is that Paul would say, yes, you can. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, absolutely. Can I go to the temple banquet hall? When, uh, you know, my neighbors are celebrating little Demas's birthday party. Can I, can I go there? Uh, yes, but maybe not, right? And we'll see in 1 Corinthians 10 and later on that um, that might actually be abuse of your freedom in Christ to go and what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10 and participate in the worship of the demonic. Um, but the main thrust of our text this morning is this is that in the early church at Corinth, there was a tension between two groups of people in the church that had two different views in regards to how do you associate with pagan modified food. And so the stronger, that's not actually, it's, yeah, anyways, that's not a thing, but just roll with me. I'll explain that a little bit. So stronger, there's this one camp called the stronger, more mature, more knowledgeable Christian that had a, a, 
a, a better or more accurate understanding uh, of their freedom, their liberty in Christ. And so they knew that in Mark 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so I'm going to eat uh, a steak in the market, whether it's, you know, it's a steak is a steak, no matter how it's prepared. And I'm going to go uh, uh, buy that. And they didn't... Um, and, and then they would go visit temple banquets and, and, and celebrate there as well. And Paul's going to say, that's actually a license. That's not exercising your liberty in Jesus. That's going too far. That's abusing it because now you're participating in the worship of, of the demonic by going to those temples. And then there's this other party. So you have the stronger, more knowledgeable. These people err on the side of license and, 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 and liberty in Jesus. We are, we're free in Christ to eat and, and drink all we want because the knowledge we have is that we know that idols are nothing. God is everything. So there's, there's no reason for us to, to abstain from the idolatrous in our culture. And then there's this weaker camp and given uh, uh, weaker, uh, uh, probably more recent converts to the Christian faith at Corinth and given their former pagan ways, they abstain from any and all aspects of temple idolatry. So they would absolutely avoid all food in the market. They, would, they wouldn't even go to the temple. They'd like look away from the temple and, and they kind of erred on the side of legalism. And so the the, the question that was probably posed to Paul in this correspondence that we don't know exactly what that entailed was uh, uh, which party needs to change? Who's in the wrong? Does the stronger need to demand that the weaker change their ways and go uh, start eating food in the market that was offered up to idols or, or vice versa? Which party needs to change? Do the stronger need to go down to the weaker or the weaker go to the stronger? And it's kind of like every marriage, right? Every marital conflict that you've been a part of, uh, one party thinks the other party's wrong. If that one party would just change, everything would be hunky-dory, right? Well, more often than not, uh, even in what I've seen in my own marriage, um, not in my marriage, but in, uh, yes. Anyways, I got to be careful what I say up here. More often than not, both parties are wrong. In my marriage, it's always me. Um... <laughs> But usually, yeah, usually sure, there's, there's one party that might be a bozo and is causing lots of trouble, but then usually the other party is, is, is self-righteous and condemning that person. And so therefore, both parties need to change. Don't come to me for marriage counseling. Go to Jeff. He's much better at that. But um, what we see in 1 Corinthians 8, what's interesting, is Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 just addresses the stronger he just addresses the stronger and he confronts them and he says, you are using your, your knowledge, your freedom in Christ to destroy your weaker brother rather than serve them in love and build them up. And this cannot be for a follower of Jesus. This cannot be. And so three things we're going to be looking at as we dive into this text. I believe three things that Paul points and exhorts the stronger, more mature believers to is this. He points them to actually what true knowledge of God actually looks like. And how true knowledge of God leads to a true worship of God. And how true knowledge leads to true worship, which inevitably, if we understand the gospel, and it leads us to exalt this God who limited his freedom for us so that we could thrive, it leads to true love where you and I will limit our freedom so that other people can thrive, particularly those weaker in the faith. So let me pray, and we'll dive in here. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that... um, uh, that, that you sent your son who limited his freedom at the incarnation. The divine wrapped himself in humanity in time and space, walked our streets, suffered and died a humiliating death, uh, took on our sin, our, uh, uh, our forsakenness of the Father. Why? 
He did that out of love for us. That's the, that's the beauty of your gospel. It's the beauty of your, your reckless love for us, your abundant, never-ending love for us. And so I, I pray uh, that that would, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would just uh, uh, marinate us in that love today, in that gospel. Tattoo that, that good news of your love and your posture towards us in our hearts so that we become more like you, Jesus, and we become a people, we become a church who no longer selfishly demanding their rights at the destruction of other people, but they're willing to lay aside their rights so that other people can live and have life abundantly in you, Jesus. So uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd move and stir in our hearts to make us more like you. Convict us where we need to be convict us and lead us into the, into the joy of repentance and the joy of following you, God. And so Holy Spirit, do you come in power and do what only you can do and change our hearts and help us to see Jesus this morning. And I pray that you, you would increase and I would decrease up here and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so the first thing Paul points up to is true knowledge. Look at verses one through three with me. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What's so interesting here is it's like the question is, is lobbed up to Paul about food offered to idols. And the way he swings at this pitch is, like, okay, now concerning food offered to idols, he says, let's talk about knowledge. And you're like, Paul, what are you talking about here? That had nothing to do with knowledge. Well, it's interesting here. We, the, you, you can see the quotes on the screen. He says in verse 1, we know that we all possess knowledge. Um, and that, that potentially was a slogan used by the Corinthian church. Um, and some scholars suggest that that might, actually might have been the slogan of the more mature believers. And, and what is that knowledge? We all possess this knowledge. And he's going to explain it in verses 4 through 6. That knowledge is that, listen, these idols in the Greco-Roman world that everyone's crazy about, they're actually nothing. So we can partake in them because of their nothingness. It's just meaningless. And God is everything. I have freedom in Christ to interact with uh, the pagan world however I see fit. And Paul says, mm, that's not entirely true. You're actually going too far. You're actually abusing your freedom in Christ. When, when, I don't know if you guys know certain people in your lives who are all about, yeah, you know, my freedom in Christ. I can smoke, curse, drink, do what I want because I'm free in Christ. Usually, that's a path towards destruction when you're more worried about your exerting your freedom in Christ rather than honoring Jesus with our conduct. There's a huge difference there. And, and, and this, um, this slogan, we all possess knowledge, was like, hey, we're the more knowledgeable Christians. We're free in Christ. We're forgiven. Uh, let's eat, drink, and be merry. And it's almost as if when Paul hears this in their question to him, he catches like a, a whiff, a, a, a smell, if you will, of pride and, and of selfishness and of arrogance. So before he's even going to address the question, he has to address the root of the problem, which is the pride of the more mature Christians. And so what Paul does here, he, he slaps on a warning label to knowledge. A big warning label in bold font, underlined in red ink. He slaps a warning label on. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Have you guys seen those uh, blood pressure medication commercials on TV? It's like a dad you know, playing street hockey with his kids, and uh, this voice comes over, like this beautiful like, family scene, and it's all about lowering your blood pressure, and these pills, they'll do something good, right? Like it's for a good cause to lower your blood pressure and make you more healthy, but they have like a dissertation of side effects, and the, the dad will be, will be playing street hockey with the kids and this voice will come on and you're just like, how is the guy even saying the side effects with a straight face? 
It's like this product may cause uh, bleeding from the ears, uh, loss of toenails, and bankruptcy. You know, you're just like, <laughs> what sadist is creating these pills? How is this, how would you ever, I'm never taking that pill. I don't want to go bankrupt. Um, and it's as if Paul here, if he were to, let's say in the 21st century, produce a commercial about a product called gnosis. That would be what he call it. It's the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. And he would um, try to sell this to seminarians like myself. I wish I saw this commercial before I went to seminary because I experienced how knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And in this commercial that Paul would produce, it would pan to a young theologian, an inspiring seminarian at a Starbucks with coffee and a big, fat, systematic theology book, maybe John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. And he's got his pen. Someone say preach. And he's got his pen and his paper. And he's studying over it. And a voice comes over that, that shot, and it says, potential side effects of gnosis may include bloating, inflammation, puffiness of head and ego. Product may cause intense irritability, mood swings, self-righteousness, an inaccurate view of oneself, of others, and reality in general. Users of gnosis may experience loss of friends, loss of joy, <laughs> loss of love for God, uh, loss of others, and loss of any influence for the kingdom of God. You might be saying that that's a little harsh. Um, aren't, we, uh, aren't we to aspire to doctrine and to knowledge? Absolutely. Paul's not anti-intellectual. I'm not anti-intellectual, but I've seen the danger that comes with the pursuit of the knowledge of God divorced from love, where you get a big head, so you rise above. It, it, it inflates your ego, and you rise above and look down at everyone else who doesn't have the same view of the, the uh, uh, scripture as you do. Same view of the end time, same view of the gifts, same, you know, whatever it is, and all of a sudden, we become air and proud. This is what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Later on in this same letter, he talks about knowledge again, and he says, and if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, like if I am Einstein of the faith, all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as not just to move mountains, but to remove mountains, I want that kind of faith. I don't want to move mountains, I want to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, he says, I am nothing. I am nothing. The divorce of knowledge and love is devastating. It's devastating. It produces prideful, arrogant, self-righteous Christians rather than Christians who have the beautiful marriage of knowledge with love so that, so that, because I think, this is, I think this is what Paul is saying. When knowledge and doctrine become a weapon to destroy rather than a tool to build up others, we've lost sight of the whole purpose of pursuing knowledge of God, right? When our pursuit of God and knowing God and studying doctrine is to puff up our egos and becomes a weapon in our hands to tear and destroy other people down and shame them rather than to serve them in love, we, we don't truly know what we think we know. And that's what Paul says in verse two. If you think you know, then you truly do not know. And then he says in verse three, he says uh, essentially this. He says, true knowledge. You want to know what true knowledge is? It's an awareness of God's knowledge of you. That's true knowledge of God's uh, sovereign grace in your life, that the only reason you know God is because he first knew you. That's what true knowledge is. And that true knowledge leads to humility. And we'll see it leads to humble worship of God. But this is what J.I. Packer has to say about that. We, in his book, 
knowing God. And it wouldn't be a sermon I'm preaching without quoting J.I. Packer and knowing God. But he says, we do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us, bringing us to know him by making his love known to us. Paul expresses this thought of the priority of grace in our knowledge of God when he writes to the Galatians, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. And we see that in verse 3 in our text. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What comes to the surface in this qualifying clause is the apostle's sense that grace came first and remains fundamental in his reader's salvation. Their knowing God was the consequence of God's taking knowledge of them. They know him by faith because he first singled them out by grace. The word know, when used of God in this way, is a sovereign grace word. I love that. It's a sovereign grace word. Pointing to God's initiative in loving, choosing, redeeming, calling, and preserving. That's what knowledge of God looks like. His knowledge of us, not, not our pride and how much we know about God. The, the, the beauty that he's got the, the hairs on my head counted or the hairs on my, my eyebrows counted, right? The beauty that he knows me and he first knew me. And the only reason I can stand up here and preach is because of that. That leaves, that, that leaves me humble, right? Uh, it causes me not to look down on others, but just to stand in awe that God would even take the initiative to, 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 to do that to me. You, you know me. You want to know me. It's called grace. And that's what Paul is pointing the stronger, uh, more proud, more self-righteous believers at Corinth to. He's saying true knowledge is God's knowledge of you, which leads to humility. Stop. Stop using your knowledge as a hammer to tear, uh, to, 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 you know, beat down uh, walls in the body of Christ. Instead, use that hammer to build up. Let's hang some photos. Let's, let's uh, you know, I don't know, what do you do with a hammer? You, you nail stuff to the walls, right? Let's do that instead of destroying stuff. Like knowledge can be a tool used to either destroy or to build up. Let's use it to build up and serve our, uh, our, our, our weaker brother in the faith, our weaker sister in the faith. And so that disclaimer is why the Apostle Paul spent about three verses talking about knowledge because he wanted to attack, not attack, but exhort them on their, their pride that he caught in there in that Corinthian slogan that, hey, we all possess this knowledge. We're in the know. These weaker brothers are not in the know. And what we see, what he goes to next in verse 4, is that that knowledge of God's knowledge of you leads to true worship of God, the true knowledge that they're talking about in verses 4 through 6. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one, for al although there may be uh, so-called gods in heaven and, and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul here is defining terms. Verse 6 is, is, is chock full of just some awesome doctrine of God. But he's saying true knowledge is this knowledge that, that, that God is creator of all. And worshiping idols is simply worshiping the created rather than the creator. And what immediately sticks out to me is Paul's staggering, blatantly offensive, sweeping indictment he makes about the Greco-Roman world and their pagan worship. He says, everything you see in the Greco-Roman world uh, uh, is, is meaningless, is, is nothing. He's saying, he's saying uh, uh, essentially this, all the millions of gods across the entire span of the Roman Empire that daily people are crying out to, praying to, sacrificing to, worshiping and serving, they do not exist. They are nothing. Worship of them is meaningless. Therefore, worship of them is a waste of time, but most importantly, it's a waste of your life. It's a waste of your life. And he's echoing 
the psalmist who says in Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What we see here is the irony of idolatry, idolatry being defined of worship of the created rather than the creator, and that could be worship of, of things that are good, but just created. When those good things become God things, that's idolatry, but the irony of idolatry is this, is that we run to the dead to give us life. We run, uh, uh, we cry out to the deaf to hear our cries for help. We trust the mutes will give us guidance and wisdom for life. We trust that which has no legs or arms or power or strength to protect and to provide for us. That's the irony of idolatry, going to the dead, the mute, the lifeless, to get what only the true God alone can give us. How silly would we exchange uh, a, a, a mere idol for the glory of the eternal, all-powerful God whose posture towards us as sons and daughters is his favor, and his, and his love, and his protection, and his provision for us. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 6. He says, yet for us, yet for us Christians still in the pagan world, still surrounded by people in the 21st century even, who are giving their lives to their career, who are giving their lives to certain addiction, crying out for, for guidance and protection. And he said, but for us Christians, yet for us, there is one God we bow down to and worship. There's one God we serve. There's one God we cry out to. There's one God that we trust our lives with. And it's God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. True knowledge leads to true worship of this God. We'll return from our vain, lifeless idols to the living God. The God who can actually deliver what he promises. And we see in verse 6, the chief end of your life. The reason you're alive today is found here in God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the apostle Paul. We were created, I love this, we were created from God. God is creator. You exist because God uh, created us. He spoke us into existence. He thought this whole thing up. And it's not that he's some deistic God out there in the cosmos and we have autonomy. We get to do whatever we want. No, he created us and, and he created us not uh, just, just uh, he created us, uh, we were created, sorry, from God, says in verse six. And we were created for God. We were created for God. That's why he created you. And we see the beautiful news and God's posture towards us, beautiful news of the gospel, is this idea is that the, the chief end of the gospel is relationship with God. It's fellowship with God. It's a table, a table uh, where we're, we're, we're feasting with our King Jesus, that the chief end of our life is that we're created from God, for God, for his glory, and this has been, where, where sin sought to destroy that, where sin sought to destroy that and separate us from God, this has been made possible, we see uh, in verse 6, through, through whom, Transit Church? Through Jesus Christ. Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, second person in the Trinity, was not only God's agent in creation, we learn that in John chapter 1, verse 3, but also God's agent in the new creation. That this Jesus accomplished redemption on behalf of you and I. And that's applied to us through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. 
spirit, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your salvation. And he alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And, and, the, and, and, and what I love about this is the heart of our Father. You want to know uh, what this, this God is like? You look to Jesus. And Jesus says throughout his Gospels, I've been loving reading through the Gospel of John and our community Bible reading plan. And Jesus uh, repeatedly throughout uh, the Gospel of John is shouting out to us and saying, there's only one place, one place humanity will ever, ever, ever find abundant life life everlasting, peace that surpasses all understanding, salvation, a loving Father for all of eternity, and that's through Jesus Christ. What he says, John 10, 10, I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's God's heart towards you. He says, but the thief's heart for you, the enemy's heart is to, to steal and kill and destroy. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yet for us, Transit Church, there is one God. My challenge to you and I would be, what are the other gods we're laying down our lives for? Coming here this week, where's our allegiance? Where's our hearts? Are our hearts tied, uh, uh, knotted up in, in, in our finances? And is that where we go for provision and for comfort? Or is it God who is our provider? Are we, are we running to other gods to give us rest and comfort? Rather than, the, uh, rather than Jesus Christ who says, come to me if you're heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let us run to the God who actually hears us and watches over us and knows us. A God who, unlike our idols, actually fulfills what he promises in our lives. Because if we actually believe he does that and he acts on behalf of the saints, if we don't believe that, we're going to keep running elsewhere. But the second you and I start believing and taking God at his word and trusting in his promises and putting our faith in him, and he shows up and begins to deliver what he promises in his word, all of a sudden the chains, the shackles of our idols start loosening, if not shattering. We're blown away about how awesome this God is. Yet for us, there's one God and one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul says here that true knowledge, God's knowledge, his sovereign grace, knowledge of his sovereign grace, leads to true worship of him, where we stop putting our trust in dead, mute idols and put our trust in God, which consequently will lead to true love of our weaker brothers and sisters. And it's a love that limits freedom. My last point here, <clears throat> verses uh, 7 to the end of the chapter, Paul talks about what true love looks like. He says in verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge. And he's talking about believers there. Not all possess this knowledge about idols um, and, and our freedom in, in Christ. And he continues, but some, <clears throat> through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscious being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, and we are no worse off if we do not eat it, or no better off if we do. He's saying food is amoral. But what's interesting here in verse 7 is Paul introduces the weaker brothers in here. He's saying these weaker brothers, they're not in the know as some of you stronger, more mature Christians are. And um, given their former pagan lifestyle, they totally avoid and abstain from anything associated with worship of idols. They won't eat food in the marketplace, won't go to the temple, won't even look at the temple. And so it's important for us to note here that the weaker brother that Paul's talking about here is not someone who simply objects to a certain practice, but, it, but one who is in danger of falling into sin. One who's in danger of falling right back into their former lifestyle. This is what uh, Craig Blumbarg has to say. 
The weaker brother or sister is a Christian who is likely to imitate a stronger believer in some morally neutral practice, but feel guilty about doing so, or worse still, be led into that which is inherently sinful or destructive. The strong uh, believer's freedom thus actually has damaging consequences for the spiritual growth and maturation of the weaker sibling. And I love that line. He says, be led into that which is inherently sinful or destructive. And so for that weaker brother, there were certain, uh, uh, and maybe some of you have a similar story as you've come to faith in Christ, but that, but that new convert in Corinth who was a full-blown pagan worshiper, certain sounds, uh, a certain, certain smells, certain sights would bring him right back to his former lifestyle before he knew Jesus. And so he totally abstains, not because he's a self-righteous, you know, a goody-two-shoes Christian, but because he's weak. It's actually his weakness, which is okay to admit in the Christian faith that, hey, I can't handle that. Some of you other Christians might be able to handle that even through the marketplace, but, but I, I would violate my conscience if, in, if I did that. And there's, Paul senses a rebuttal from the stronger camp here. And, and the rebuttal I think he, he senses, given what he says next, is, is Paul, how in the world is, is that my problem? How, how should their weakness limit my freedom in Jesus? I want to eat bacon-wrapped fillets for the glory of God, whether they think so or not. That's their issue. And this is what Paul, this is what Paul says, 9 through 12. But take care that this right, he says, it's a warning. Here's a warning here to the stronger. Take care this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, remember, by, by, it's a tool. It can be used to build up or to destroy. By your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak. You sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. Paul's reaction here is pretty intense. And essentially he's saying, how dare you tempt another weaker brother or sister to violate their conscience and listen, bring them one step closer to their former life by participating in a temple feast that was dedicated to the demonic. Yes, idols are nothing, but behind the nothingness of those idols is a demonic force uh, uh, seeking to enslave humanity. Idols are nothing, but behind that, that's what the enemy uses to enslave us. And that's why it's such a big deal to the Apostle Paul, because the Christian life is warfare. Often I forget, often I think we're in a time of peace. And we're not, church, we're not. Christian life is warfare against the gates of hell. And the enemy, just as much as God, wants to know you and be known by you. Therefore, if you or I are used by the enemy to do the enemy's work and cause a weaker brother or sister in the faith to move even an inch off the path of the straight and narrow following Jesus, that's a big deal for the Apostle Paul, and it should be a big deal for us, when in fact we should exercise our liberty in Jesus to point them closer to Jesus, further along on the hard path of the straight and narrow following Jesus, not tempt them to step off the path and get closer to their former uh, pre-Jesus era. And then he says this, he says, not only do you sin against them by violating their conscience and almost leading them to destruction, you sin against Christ. And what he means there is, is, Jesus gave his life. Listen, he laid down his rights. He forfeited his rights, stepped off the throne to rescue that person out of the kingdom of darkness. And now you, instead of laying aside your rights, are asserting your rights and your freedom to point a brother away from Jesus, a Jesus who died for that person, literally gave his life, laid down his life to ransom that person out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And now you are demanding, you're gonna, uh, I'm gonna demand my rights and then lead that person back to the kingdom. 
that he came from and who Jesus died for. This cannot be. And so what we learn here, the principle we learn here, is that what you and I do matters, church. What we do matters. There's people watching us, right? There's, there's, there's younger, newer Christians in the faith that are, are looking to the, the more mature, more stronger, saying, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And it's our duty not to shame them with our knowledge, but use our knowledge of the gospel and of uh, the good news of, of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, to shepherd them and lead them into paths of righteousness. And so... Um, the way I liken this, this to is uh, if you ever work out and you have a gym partner, it's very rare, I think in my experience, that you have two gym partners who are equal strength. So when I was a freshman in college at George Mason, I had a, a friend of mine who was a sophomore in college, and we would go work out like every day because that's what you do to impress girls. You have to work out, right? And so this dude was a linebacker in, uh, in high school. He was a meathead. He was a more mature meathead than I was farther along in his meat-headedness, okay? I, on the other hand, was not a linebacker, as you can very well tell, okay? And so when we would go do these power lifts and, and I say squats, for instance, like we would, my boy Derek, like one plate, two plate, three plate, four plate, okay? And he'd rep it out, boom, boom, boom. And I'd be like, I'll try to catch you if you fall, but I might just, you know, whatever. And then, and then what would have to happen is that when I would step under the rack, before that, we'd have to, all right, you know, the, put your head down and take off one plate, two plate, three plate, maybe four plates. Maybe I'll just do the bar this time, warm up, you know? And so what would happen if, if Derek, you know, was just like, I'm tired of this, man. I'm getting weaker. I have to go down to your level. This is taking far too long to add plates, take away. This is ruining my workout, Nick. And so you know what? Instead of me going down to your level, I'm not taking off any plates this time. You're going to step under the squat rack these four plates. And I'm going to see how many reps you can do, bro. Crank it out. I think you got it. You say you're weak, you can't handle it, but I think you can. Come on, man. Why, why are you so scared? Come on, step on the rock. If I try to rep that out, that would be the last squat of my life, right? <laughs> like my back would bend like a slinky. I would just cripple. He would, he would assert his right to a good workout at the destruction of his, of his literally weaker brother. And instead, here's the beauty of this. Here's the beauty of this. Instead, instead of him doing that, he lays aside his rights. And what happens? The weaker brother becomes stronger, right? The weaker brother becomes stronger because he uses his strength and his knowledge to build me up, not destroy me. And then, in addition to that, my friend becomes more like Jesus Christ. And he becomes stronger. Why? Because when you and I follow Jesus, it's going to lead us down a path of selfless, sacrificial love for the benefit of others. And we're going to take our focus off of ourselves and our rights and our selfish desires and actually lay them aside. And so that's a win-win, baby. The weaker becomes stronger and the stronger becomes more and more like Jesus, a selfless servant. Bob Buford, uh, a successful businessman, wrote a book, I believe it was called Halftime, but in that book he says this. He says there is a transition, calls it halftime in his life where Christ changed his life. He went from selfishness to selflessness. And his common refrain in the book is, he says this, my fruit grows on other people's trees. Isn't that good? My fruit grows on other people's trees. My gains are actually other people's gains. What if we adopted that in the church today? What if that was our mindset? And so my challenge before I conclude here is, what are some things that you and I could give up in our lives? What are some things you and I could lay aside for the benefit of our weaker brother and sister in Christ? Maybe some of the things we watch, 
maybe simple things like some of the things we promote on social media. Um, uh, I was a youth pastor for a long time, and we had a policy with uh, our, our youth group leaders who were over 21. They had every legal right to, to, to drink and smoke or, or, or whatever. But uh, uh, the policy was under no circumstances, if you're around those who are under 18, are you going to be caught, not caught, but seen drinking? And there's also, in our church, it was a big church, there was a ton of social events where the leaders were friends with the other adults who would host a party, there'd be alcohol there, and they wouldn't touch alcohol. Why? Why? Because, because of the weaker uh, brothers and sisters in the youth group who are daily surrounded in high school of, of, of uh, popularity equals drinking, right? And they're watching, they're watching. They're saying, hey, that guy's really cool, he's telling about Jesus, and he drinks. Can't I just go to this party, Right? And Jesus says in Mark 9, if you lead one of those younger brothers or sisters uh, away from Jesus, you cause one of them to stumble. You throw a, a stumbling block in their way, tire center block around your neck and jump in the water is what Jesus said, right? Are we mindful of this? Are we mindful of this? Because we live in a society now where we assert our rights, my right to choose at the destruction of others, right? That's the kind of society we live in and how dare that be the mindset of the church, if you're a stronger, more mature believer here in the church, then you are more than happy to lay aside your rights for the benefit of others because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. That's why Paul can say this. I'll conclude with verse 13. I call this the vegan resolution, verse 13. Therefore, it's like Paul has like this gusto and he's building up to this in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble stumble. And a quick side note, can we all agree that there's no higher sacrifice that Paul could make than forfeiting me, right? <laughs> no higher price could be paid. How could Paul say this? How could Paul do this? Like, I'll change my eating habits. I'll go vegan. How could he say that? Lay aside that, that right that he had. The reason why is because Paul knew that this is what Jesus Christ had done for him. King Jesus laid aside his rights to the point of death for you and me so that we could live in him. And, and um, I'll conclude with John 13, a couple verses from John 13. As you know, we do this thing, if you're new here at the church, we have community Bible reading plans where we're all, uh, if, we're, if you're doing this, we're all going through two uh, books of the Bible at the same time. There's some uh, in the lobby. I would encourage you to pick those up if you don't have a good Bible reading plan. But we've been going through the Gospel of John, and I read John 13 this week. John 13 is the context of the upper room discourse. This is Jesus' deathbed meal and deathbed message to his disciples. And, and, and at this meal, Jesus, uh, this is what Jesus does. In John 13, you know it well. He washes the disciples' feet. But what stuck out to me was in verses three and four. And so read this, don't read this out loud to me, but, but, but it'll be on the screen. Verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God. And look at verse four. He rose from supper. Those three words astounded me this morning. He rose from supper. Jesus had to leave something behind in order to wash the feet. Jesus had to, to uh, lay aside certain things. He, he laid aside his outer garments. And, 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 what, and then what did he took on? He, he, he took a towel and tied it around his waist, what a, what a servant, what a slave would do in that household. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Christ put down the wine, rose from a delicious Passover meal, uh, 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 was lounging, had every, every right Every right to say, hey, Peter, uh, none of our feet are washed. Can you wash, can you wash some feet? And Peter would have hopped up and done it in a heartbeat, right? So, hey, this is my last meal. 
24 hours, I'm, I'm going I'm to die here. And, and, and Jesus doesn't do that. And what he does here by rising up from his right to eat a delicious meal and get some rest before he has uh, 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 to face the cross, instead of that, he limits his freedom. He leaves some stuff. And this foreshadows the work, the salvific work that he was going to do with his incarnation and his death and resurrection. So the question I want to pose to us is, is, you know, what if God demanded that you and I ascend up to him? Like, what if Jesus refused to step off his throne and said, that's their problem? This whole sinfulness, this whole under God's just wrath against their sins, that's their problem. They need to deal with it. It's not going to impinge on my rights. What if Jesus did that? We'd still be hopelessly stuck in our sins. And instead, we're, 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 we're walking resurrections where God is removing stones in our life left and right. And there's one day that we're going to feast with him for all of eternity. The worst that has happened was, was, was 2,000 years ago on the cross, and the best is yet to come for us. Today's a great day for the saints. It's a great day. No matter what we're facing, it's a great day today. We're not in hell today because of what this Jesus did for us. And instead, true, what we see is true love limits freedom. And that is what the incarnation was, where God became man. He limited himself literally in time and space by taking on our humanity to serve as our representative, our reconcile, and our substitute before God so that you and I now could have life everlasting in him. That's the Christian ethic now. This is what Jesus has done out of love for you and me. That's what he did for us. And so now our mantra, our ethic is Christ died so that I might live. Now I die so that others might live. May we be a church that is more than happy to never uh, eat certain food again or lay aside certain rights so that our younger or weaker brother and sister in the faith can, can with arms wide open, pursue Jesus Christ and run full sprint to him. Let's spur one another on to, uh, to this good Savior who laid down his life for us. And so with that said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, that um, you're a gracious God, you're a loving God, you're a, a good God who um, doesn't just give lip service to your love for us, but uh, uh, acts on our behalf, sacrifices on our behalf, limits a God who limits his freedom so that we can have freedom in Christ, freedom from death, freedom from sin, freedom from hell and have all the blessings of your goodness and your abundant mercy in our lives. So we want to say thank you for doing that. Uh, we're just reminded and blown away of your, your grace and your posture towards us this morning. And Holy Spirit, would you come and would, uh, I pray for the church, specifically here but, but abroad, uh, both in this nation and across the globe, that a revival would take place in our hearts, that we'd be a people who would gladly forsake idols, gladly lay aside rights, because we found uh, the, the, the person of, of immeasurable worth, we found you, Jesus. And I pray that we'd be people who are hungry and thirsty for you and a people who are filled with your love, a love that beckons us to pray for those who persecute us, to uh, a love that calls us to love and to lay down our lives for our enemies. So Holy Spirit, would you stir in our hearts the love that you had for your enemies would you stir in our hearts the love that Jesus had as he was looking down on the cross with nails in his hands and nails in his feet and saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. May we be a people defined by your love, Jesus. 
and we shake off and we repent, we turn from the idols of this, of this world that's fading, that's passing away, we repent and we turn to you, the one true God, and we cry out, there's one God in heaven on earth. There's one place where salvation can be found. There's one place where true rest and true joy and true peace and love can be found, and that's in your name alone, Jesus Christ. And so we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor this morning. We say thank you and praise in your name.